Good morning. Today I'm going to celebrate and explore the achievement of John Milton, poet, patriot, pamphleteer. And wherever and whenever one talks about John Milton, he becomes relevant to the place and time one is in. This has happened in different ways at different times to me as I've talked about Milton over the last few months. And today, standing here in the Department for Continuing Education at Oxford University is no exception. Now, it's not the Oxford University part of that that is relevant. Um, John Milton was actually a Cambridge man, but we can forgive him that uh, because he didn't like it very much there. And he wrote, for example, that his fellow students, and I'm sure this never happens these days, his fellow students merely recycled other people's ideas and that the intellectual atmosphere was stultifying. Indeed, he was rusticated, which means he took a break. Whether he jumped or whether he was pushed remains a debate. He went back to London for a few months, recharged his batteries and went back to Cambridge. It also seems that while he was at Cambridge, he was bullied for his perceived effeminacy. He was described, nicknamed the Lady of Christ's. Christ's was his college and suffered a lot of uh, taunting on the subject and fought back magnificently in Latin, of course, as you do at Cambridge in the 1620s. So it's not the Oxford University or the Cambridge, the Oxbridge aspect of it that's important to Milton, but it's the continuing education side. Milton's education which began at St. Paul's School, close to his home in Bread Street in the city of London, continued through Cambridge as a young man. It didn't stop there. It continued throughout his life. He had a hunger for learning for himself and a passionate belief that education and learning continued throughout one's life and a passionate belief in the importance of an educated citizenry. Only through education could the people of a country remain free, remain sceptical of their leaders, remain willing to challenge the lies that leaders occasionally say, make their leaders accountable. You can see this vision throughout his writing, most explicitly perhaps in a tract like Of Education, where he sets out his vision of education for young men. But other works he wrote reflect this interest in learning, both for himself, for example, in his 40s, already the master of four or five languages, Hebrew, Italian, Latin, all of which he could write poetry in as well as speak them, he decided to add Dutch. As I say, he was in his 40s, he was already blind, but he managed to pick up the language well enough to write political documents in it. Now, he was obviously an extremely precocious intellectual boy, achieved a great deal as a young man, but one of the reasons he was in sympathy with the idea of learning continuing throughout one's life is that it took him an awfully long time to mesh that intellectual precocity with, as it were, a public voice, a public role. And really he only got into his stride in his 30s and 40s and then in his 50s and 60s. And those last years were the decades in which he wrote the major works for which he is remembered. So that's perhaps another reason that he remained committed to education and learning throughout one's life. But underlying all of that is a belief that the individual needs to be able to make up his or her own mind about the information they receive, about the words that they read. In one of his most famous prose works, Areopagitica, in which he defends the freedom of the press, the right to publish, and challenges the idea that pre-publication censorship uh, was a valuable thing in a society, would somehow protect a society from evil views and bad ideas. He said, no, we mustn't censor before something has gone out to the public. There may be a case occasionally for censoring works that have gone out there and people have had a chance to assess them for themselves and decide that they are wrong. He argued in Areopagitica, for example, that complaints, political complaints, social complaints, religious complaints should be freely heard so that reform could be attempted. But underlying that was his commitment to the idea, as he says, that dull ease and cessation of our knowledge 
would lead to obedient unanimity, a gross conforming stupidity. Is that connection, cessation of knowledge, the stopping of knowledge, leading to a gross conforming stupidity? Exactly what those in power wish for their, most of their populace, a gross conforming stupidity. They'll just tick the box and accept what's being done to them. And Milton in Areopagitica and elsewhere is eloquent in defence of the free press that is necessary to achieve that uh, increase of knowledge, that print should be available to everyone. And as he says, a wise man shall make better use of an idle pamphlet than a fool will do of sacred discipline. There's a commitment not just to writing, not just to print, but to cheap, accessible print available to everyone at all times. It's only fitting, therefore, that Milton's last prose work to be published at a time when he was pretty much hanging up his pen, he had written all his major epic poems. It was called, and you'll have to bear with the title because it's not a short and catchy one, Accidents Commenced Grammar Supplied with Sufficient Rules for the Use of Such as Younger or Elder are desirous, without more trouble than needs, to attain the Latin tongue. The elder sort, especially, with little teaching and their own industry. This little book, Eight Pennies, from Samuel Simmons, who had published Paradise Lost just two years earlier, and was available, if you had your eight pennies, at the shop next door to the Golden Lion in Aldersgate Street, down near St Paul's, where Milton had grown up, the aim of this little book was to speed up the whole process of learning Latin. Milton's reaching out to those who missed out on an education first time round. He wants everyone to be able to access at whatever stage of their life, Latin, the lingua franca of Europe, still the lingua franca politically, in religious debate, and in many other areas, scientifically as well. That commitment to the power of education the power of books, the power of ideas, the power of the word, stayed with Milton throughout his life. And it's that commitment, looking at that commitment, that's where I end my biography of John Milton, which I'd like to just read from now. I argue here that, and it's not a difficult case to argue, that Milton sustained an extraordinary creativity, allied to a powerful political and religious engagement over many years and in the face of the most challenging obstacles. I'll be talking about some of those obstacles in a moment. When his third wife, Betty Minchel Milton, died in 1727, the dry list of her estate contained the words, two books of paradise. If her husband, had only left those two books of Paradise, it would have been enough. Yet Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained are only one small part of an unusually diverse and prolific series of writings. Throughout these writings are informed by Milton's vocational commitment to writing. Despite blindness and censorship, personal losses and political defeat, more of which in a moment. He maintained and developed this commitment invariably in the service of his country. Milton was both a radical and a traditionalist. Looking back over centuries of classical and Judeo-Christian thinking with his unrivaled intellectual scope, but also looking forward to many ideas that would influence both politics and literature in important ways over the coming centuries. Concerned always with the relationship between history and contemporary life, he argued again and again for the centrality of freedom of choice for the individual in religious, political and personal life. Knowing, as he wrote, that tyranny must be, tyranny must be, that we live in a world of evil, he nevertheless created inspirational images of a humanity struggling heroically against oppression and moving towards lives of more liberty, more justice, 
more equality. No wonder he was a hero to the 18th and 19th centuries. Yet, he also had a very modern awareness that in profound and important ways, we cannot escape ourselves. His emotional life, what is possible to know of it, and he did a very good job of concealing it from would-be biographers, his emotional life was marked by disappointments and bitterness, estrangements and losses. In Paradise Lost, Milton's most exciting, most compelling dramatic creation, Satan, asks, which way shall I fly? And Satan's question echoes John, the young John Milton's question, when he wrestled with his own unhappiness as a young man. In Paradise Lost, Satan's answer to himself is completely despairing. Which way I fly is hell. Myself am hell. Milton's writings and his life answer the question in other ways, never disowning or ignoring the despair, but offering celebrations of friendship and of love, celebrations of religious toleration and intellectual openness, and above all, political liberty. Although every generation will argue, debate the terms of Milton's arguments and debates, what is liberty, for example, they will argue about the legitimacy of his ideas. Nevertheless, Milton's vision of the powerful work that can be done by the word as created by humanity remains a compelling, optimistic and necessary one. And I close my biography with a quotation from John Milton's second defence of the English people. The English people needed a lot of defending in the 1650s because they were experimenting with Republican government. But he gives a vision of the powerful work that can be done by the word. And he writes himself into it. I imagine myself to have set out upon my travels. He, as an author, has set out upon his travels that I behold from on high tracts beyond the seas and wide extended regions, that I behold countenances strange and numberless and all in feelings of mind, my closest friends and neighbours. From the columns of Hercules to the furthest borders of India, Throughout this vast expanse, I am bringing back, bringing home to every nation, liberty, so long driven out, so long an exile. That's where I ended my biography on Milton. A lot of hindsight there, a lot of looking back at the overview of a long and extremely creative life. But hindsight for a biographer is a curse. And in a sense, one of the things I wanted to do when I first sat down to write a life of John Milton is to put him back as far as I could into his own century. To restore that sense of contingency, uncertainty that we experience as we live our lives today. We don't know how our stories are going to turn out. I wanted to see events unfolding in real time. Let me give you one example of the kind of thing I resisted, or tried to resist. Hindsight creeps in the back door, ever, always. We know that the monarchy in England was only interrupted for 11 short years, 1649 to 1660. And that's precisely why some historians, most historians, call that period the interregnum, the Cromwellian sandwich filling between the execution of Charles I and the restoration of his son, Charles II. But if you were living in London, as Milton was, through the civil war years of the 1640s, through the relentless political and military experimentations of the 1650s, 
hearing news of rebellions and uprisings, of battles and coups, you had absolutely no idea what was going to happen next. And as I wrote, I wanted to try to capture that. To give an example, I want you to travel back in your mind to late 1659. And by doing so, I hope you'll see what a remarkable achievement Paradise Lost is, not just in its content, which is remarkable enough, but simply to exist, to get out there. I'm going to argue it is the ultimate comeback book. So, as I say, we're going to go back to 1659, and I would ask you to picture John Milton just turned 51 years old. For the previous 10 years, he has been a committed Republican. He has served the government of Oliver Cromwell as Latin secretary. As I said, the English Republic needed a lot of defending, and the case needed to be made to wider Europe that this new experiment was legitimate, justified, successful. Milton was Cromwell's Latin apologist most of the time. With the death of Oliver Cromwell, however, a terrifying succession of political and military scenarios unfolded. The failure of each one bringing the return of monarchy even closer. People looked back. When had there been stability? It's fear drives conservatism. In the chaotic, desperate months of late 1659 and early 1660, John Milton would write some of his most passionate and focused prose, defending to the last his dream of conciliar, accountable government, defending to the last his commitment to freedom in religion, and condemning with every phrase what he saw as the servile bondage of monarchy, that people would choose a king. How could that happen? And condemning the restoration of the established church, which he saw only as a vehicle of repression. Religion, in Milton's mind, was a matter for the individual conscience. It was not a good time to be saying these things. By late February 1660, there was open talk of a return to monarchy. And just to give you a sense of how quickly this happened, how quickly regimes can topple and the new order can come in, even three months earlier, in the last months of 1659, talk of monarchy had been conducted in whispers. No one yet was calling for the restoration of King Charles II. Suddenly, all was changed. We can actually date it to a couple of days in late February. John Aubrey, coffee house gossip, raconteur, marvellous source of anecdotes for the later 17th century, tells us what happened. He's writing about the discussion of Republican government that had occurred in the, the newfangled coffee houses of London. Everybody talking about new ideas, radical, all very exciting. These discussions continued till 20th or 21st February. And then, upon the unexpected turn, upon General Monks coming in, that's one of Cromwell's military commanders who'd been based up in Scotland but was now marching south, having come out in support of the restoration of the king. Then, upon the unexpected turn, upon General Monks coming in, all these airy models vanished. Then, t'was not fit, nay treason, to have done such. Of course, General Monk justified his march south, his uh, negotiations to restore Charles II, because he hated military government. And he had a point. England was uh, teetering, falling between various military factions. And Monk would argue, I am engaged in conscience and honour to see my country freed. See how easy it is to invoke freedom. I am engaged in conscience and honour to see my country freed from that intolerable slavery of a sword government, and I know England cannot, nay, will not endure it, thus speaks the leader of an army. By the time Monk had arrived in Whitehall and Westminster 
Uh, Whitehall Palace had been quickly brushed up and cleaned up. They were going to sell it off to get money, but in fact they realised, oh, another regime coming, better tidy it up. Better get some rooms for that nice General Monk. The blind John Milton had already been mocked in a pamphlet, The Outcry of London Prentices. Everything seemed set for the return of Charles Stuart. John Evelyn could now write that everyone was hoping and desiring that the government would be established once again on its ancient and right basis. By 6th of March, Samuel Pepys, also very helpful to the historian, was noting that everybody now drinks the king's health without fear, whereas before it was very private that a man dare do it. In mid-March, Parliament dissolved itself very cheerfully, Pepys again, and by April the king's arms were appearing everywhere. It had all happened very, very quickly. You'll see that Evelyn, Pepys, say everyone loves the return of the king. There are no dissenting voices. Well, that's not strictly true because John Milton was seized by such fury at this change in the political tide that he picked up his pen. He wrote with an astonishing speed and urgency, responding day by day to events as they unfolded. And the works from this time, particularly the ready and easy way to establish uh, a free commonwealth, speak to that sense of urgency. He runs through varieties of political models that we could, the English people could take on if only they just say no to the slavery, in his mind, of monarchy. Under pressure, he even starts imagining a more democratic, Milton is no democrat, he believes in conciliar, Senate-led government, people being led for their own good. But nevertheless, that Senate is chosen and uh, elected and accountable and based on merit rather than on birth. But in 1660, he advocates pragmatically a more popular assembly to complement the noble Senate or council. Under crisis, his politics remain both patrician, the people need to be saved from themselves and compelled to liberty, and visionary, imagining a free commonwealth whose leaders walk the streets as other men, may be spoken to freely, familiarly, friendly, without adoration. He restates his profound conviction that the whole freedom of man consists either in spiritual or civil liberty. The former is achieved when an individual is at liberty to serve God and to save his own soul according to the best light which God hath planted in him to that purpose. No mention of a church there. The latter is most likely to occur in a commonwealth which will ensure the civil rights and advancements of every person according to his merit. You can see that emphasis on merit is linked to Milton's belief in education. The final pages of this work, The Ready and Easy Way, are deeply moving in the desperate sense that Milton recognises that his vision will not become reality. He imagines himself like the prophet Jeremiah, having none to cry to. Still, he must speak out these last words of our expiring liberty. All that that work and the others that Milton wrote at that time did was to draw attention to Milton. He was satirised mercilessly in a pamphlet called No Blind Guides, in which the calculated insult of the title, remember Milton has lost his sight ten years earlier, was exacerbated by the motto, if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch, taken judiciously from Matthew 15, 14. Nothing, it seemed, would stem the tide of support for Charles I. And... Literally, as the carriage wheels of the king were heading towards London, Milton desperately tried to put his affairs in order as he knew it was a dangerous time for him. Repeatedly vituperated and threatened in print, it was claimed that he had been struck blind by God as he wrote the second word of Iconoclastes, his defence of the killing of Charles I. It was only a matter of time before words like that became reality. By the time King Charles II 
arrived back in London, Milton, quite sensibly, was in hiding. His hiding place needed to be good, and it was. In fact, we're still not sure where he hid. Probably in St Bartholomew Close, in the shadow of St Paul's, again, back in his home neighbourhood. The attacks continued in print. He was the blind beetle, the mercenary hack. There were rumours that his books had been burned and that he himself had been summarily hanged. In mid-August, a step further was taken towards making these rumours reality, proclamations issued against his books. A list of those who would be executed and even those whose bodies would be exhumed and put on public display was soon going to be published. Everyone expected Milton's name to be on that list. Remarkably, it wasn't. He was exempted from the punishments meted out on the dead bodies of people like Oliver Cromwell and Ireton, or the execution meted out to Henry Vane, who had actually expressed more moderate opinions than Milton. Exempted from the death penalty, Milton emerged from hiding. It was a rather foolish thing to do. Within a couple of months, he was in prison, again fearing for his life. But it seems the regime only wanted to humiliate Milton. And when he emerged from prison in 1661, it must have seemed he had indeed lost everything. What was the point of killing this man? We could imagine that the rest would be silence. Milton was completely blind. He was on the losing political side. He had no money. He was in danger of religious persecution for his beliefs, and he could not write, let alone publish, because of the new censorship laws in force. His first wife, the one who famously left him and went back to a village near Oxford, but came back a few years later. His first wife had died, leaving him with four very young children, the youngest only a few days old, another older daughter disabled. Milton's second wife, married during the 1650s, had also died, as had her daughter, Milton's fifth child. Then Milton's only son, aged just two, died. In the 1660s, with three teenage-ish, or as we might say, preteen daughters to care for, he developed gout, an extremely unpleasant illness. And London, the city in which he was trying to rebuild his life with very little to help him, was first beset by plague and then devastated by fire. But Milton was no stranger to loss. Again and again throughout his life, he takes the raw experience of loss and moulds it into work of remarkable political power, of poetic power and political power, I like to think. We don't have personal letters from Milton, or at least we have very few. We don't have the diary entries which tell us how he felt when his wife died or his son or how he finally lost his sight. We only have the public voice, the public poetry and prose. But for me, that's enough. I want now to share three moments in Milton's life in which he experienced loss and show how that is transmuted into his writing. I won't offer much commentary. I'm just going to allow his own words, I hope, to do their work. The first moment I want to turn to is slightly different from the others and I think slightly different from most of Milton's work. I've said he transmutes loss and turns it into poetry. But invariably, that transmutation involves restoring hope in some form at the end of the work. And the poem I'm going to read in a moment, there is no hope. It's a poem about the death of his wife. As a biographer, the fact that we are not sure which wife is being mourned might seem insurmountable. But for me, it is the emotion of the poem that is more important than nailing it like a butterfly to a particular person or historical moment. I'm going to read the poem, it's a sonnet, and you will hear 
all the classical references to Alcestis and Jove, you'll hear the Old Testament references to the Mosaic law. But what stays with you after 12, 13 lines of dense imagery, complex illusion, is the desolation of the final line. All of Milton's learning, all of his different ways of trying to understand his loss, fail him. Those classical references, that biblical language, just doesn't work. I'll read the poem. Methought I saw my late espoused saint, brought to me like Alcestis from the grave, whom Jove's great son to her glad husband gave, rescued from death by force, though pale and faint. Mine, as whom washed from spot of childbed taint, purification in the old law did save, and such as yet once more I trust to have full sight of her in heaven without restraint. Came vested all in white, pure as her mind. Her face was veiled, yet to my fancied sight, love, sweetness, goodness in her person shined so clear as in no face with more delight. But oh, as to embrace me, she inclined. I waked, she fled, and day brought back my night. It's extremely raw at the end there. Milton does a lot of emotional work with monosyllables. We tend to think of him as a difficult writer, as a Latinate writer, as a writer full of dense illusions which editors worthily explain to us in endless footnotes, which are fascinating in their own right. But, but oh, as to embrace me, she inclined. I waked, she fled, and day brought back my night. It's simple, it's sensuous, it's passionate. It's exactly what Milton himself wanted poetry to be. In that closing line, indeed in the whole poem, in which he imagines his dead wife coming to him in a dream, we have Milton's blindness written in. He wakes and darkness comes. The eyes of his mind no longer functioning. He has to deal with the physical reality of his blindness. And my second piece of writing by Milton addresses the loss of his sight. Now, I said there weren't many personal letters, and it seems just a quirk of fate that we have a couple of letters written to a friend, uh, a Greek man called uh, Philaras, who had got in touch with Milton, admired him immensely, and said, I know a doctor in Paris who might be able to help with your eyesight. And Milton clutched at that straw in the way uh, that is completely understandable. And he wrote to uh, Philaras in the kind of detail that he completely excises, or other people have excised, from his other writings. For example, we do hear about his bodily symptoms. His spleen and his viscera were burdened and shaken with flatulence. Perhaps we didn't need to know that. But he describes the progress of his disability. While considerable sight still remained, he writes, when I would first go to bed and lie on one side or the other, abundant light would dart from my closed eyes. Then a sight daily diminished, colours proportionately darker, would burst forth with violence and a sort of crash within. He's describing in detail the collapse of his eyesight. At first he had been able to see a little mistily, but now when he writes in 1654... All was pure black, marked as if with extinguished or ashy light. He still had a hope. A little crack of light entered, a minute quantity of light entered his eye from time to time. But somewhere Milton knows he is not going to get his eyesight back. And he closes this letter to Philaras with, I think, a remarkable expression of patience and acceptance. Hard won, I am absolutely sure. The previous three or four years had been terrible for Milton. And he writes, although some glimmer of hope 
too may radiate from that physician, the man in Paris. I prepare and resign myself as if the case were quite incurable. And I often reflect that since many days of darkness are destined to everyone, as the wise man warns, mine thus far, by the signal kindness of providence, between leisure and study and the voices and visits of friends, are much more mild than those lethal ones. So life as it is is still got lots of good things in it, friendship. He goes on that he is capable of seeing, not by my eyes alone, but sufficiently by God's leading and providence. And here comes, whether one has faith or not, a remarkably poignant expression of his trust and faith in God. Indeed, while he himself looks out for me and provides for me, which he does, and takes me as if by the hand and leads me throughout life, surely since it has pleased him, I shall be pleased to grant my eyes a holiday. The loss of sight becomes a holiday for his eyes, a chance to be properly dependent upon God in the same way that he's dependent on the boys that will lead him through the streets of London, one hand on his shoulder. Milton's wives, Milton's blindness, these are familiar territory for many of us. Milton biographers. But I want to mention one further loss, a loss that is hidden in many ways, hidden because it occurred before Milton became a public figure, hidden because the loss is explored in Latin, a dead language, hidden because Milton chose to hide it, or at least never to return to it, which is one form of hiding, and hidden because the loss was the death of an individual that I believe John Milton loved more than any other. And that individual was a man. I'll read to you from the poem that Milton wrote in Latin, but I'm going to read in uh, a literally prosaic translation. This is the poem called Epitaphium Daemonis, in which John Milton mourns his friend, Charles Diodati, the son of Italian Protestant immigrants, childhood friend, teenage friend, recipient of delightful, playful, joyous, erotic poems and letters. And then Charles dies. And he dies when Milton is travelling in Italy. I could talk for hours, and I often have done, about Milton's journeys in Italy in 1638-1639. It was a glorious time for him, absolutely the time of his life. He was extremely happy, extremely successful, celebrated indeed, in Italy. But during that very journey, this friend, Charles, would die back in England. As I say, I'll read from the prose. A quick word about the refrain that you'll hear. Typically with Milton, he's got his eye on Latin classical sources, models. He's echoing and modifying Virgil's refrain from Virgil's final eclogue, which is almost celebratory and says farewell in a happy way. Virgil does. He says, go home, my full-fed goats, the evening star comes, go home. It's valedictory, but positively so. You'll hear that Milton does not say, go home, my full-fed goats, the evening star comes, go home. He says something completely different. I'll just read a little bit from, as I say, the prose translation. It, the poem still awaits a really uh, fitting English translation into poetry. But we men are a hard race, a race harassed by cruel fates. Our minds are unfriendly, our hearts discordant. It is hard for a man to find one kindred spirit among thousands of his fellows. And if at last, softened by our prayers, fate grants one, there comes the unexpected day, the unlooked-for hour, which snatches him away, leaving an eternal emptiness. Go home, unfed lambs. Your shepherd has no time for you now. Alas, what wanderlust drove me to foreign shores, across the sky summits of the snow-clad Alps. Was it so very important for me to see buried Rome? Would it have been 
even if the city had looked as it once did when Titurus himself left his flocks and fields to see it, was it important enough to justify my leaving so sweet a companion and setting between us so many deep seas, so many mountains and forests, so many rocks and roaring rivers? Ah, I could at least have held your hand for the last time and gently closed your eyes, your lids in peaceful death and said, goodbye, remember me as you fly up to the stars. Go home unfed, lambs, your shepherd has no time for you now. It's a very powerful poem. My Latin is not good enough to do justice to it in the original But as I say, even in that quite literally prosaic translation, you capture um, a sense of the grief. Now, the sonnet I began talking about, Methought I Saw My Late Spoused Saint, as I mentioned, is quite rare. It has an ending with no hope, no consolation. Even in Epitaphium Daimonis, which I've just read from, there is a faint promise that in the face of grief, Milton will put behind him the things of his youth, love, Charles, Latin, and turn to the English language, to his public self. He actually imagines himself becoming a a, a stone uh, in a a work just from slightly later. I'm going to become rock, he says. He'll become a public writer engaged with English. He will, as he says rather uh, affectedly, he'll whistle a British song. Milton's writing again and again describes that movement from loss to hope. You may well know the famous last line of Lysidas, another elegy, which begins by mourning a young man cut off in the prime of life, but ends with the rallying cry, tomorrow to fresh fields and pastures new. There are other examples I could give. You might want to look at Milton's divorce tracts. These eloquently, and often extremely nastily, describe a bad marriage. The loss, again loss, of love between two people. He describes those two people as two deadly enemies trapped in a cage. And what he's trying to do in his divorce tracts is find a way to unlock that cage. Well, allow the man to unlock that cage. But typically, he looks for a way forward. This brings me, at last, to Paradise Lost. Milton's epic exploration, written in the final years of his life, his exploration of the loss of innocence described in the book of Genesis, a loss of innocence that, of course, in his mind and most of his contemporaries in Christian Europe, a loss that touched all humanity. So what is paradise lost? Why is it important? Well, there are some simple answers. For me, it is the creative distillation and the passionate expression of John Milton's religious and political vision, the culmination of his literary ambitions since he was a very young man. The epic stands as a remarkable coalescence of his highly developed talent with languages, remember that learning Dutch in his waters, his wide-ranging personal and political experiences for good and for bad, all those losses, but above all, his fertile visionary imagination. The poem acts both as the ultimate expression of Milton's sense of his own Englishness and the state of his own nation, but also as a lament for and a celebration of all of humanity that transcends both time and place. And it's that element of lament and celebration that I think is particularly crucial to Milton's art. But for me, as I said earlier, as I hope I indicated thinking about Milton in 1659, 1660, and the problems that faced him, the real dangers that he faced, the real poverty and persecution that he had to survive. It is not just the content which is remarkable, but the fact that the work was published at all. I mentioned the plague and the fire. The fire, following on the work of the plague, decimated London's printing industry. There literally was no paper around for months after 1666. 
I mentioned earlier the censorship and violent repression, suppression of printing presses. Would you have published anything by John Milton, regicide? We have to remember that Milton is blind in a pre-industrial society, completely dependent upon others, day in, day out, for support. He's a writer. How is he going to get the thousands upon thousands of words, all in his mind, all held there in his remarkable memory, even remarkable by the standards of the 17th century, and having seen how schoolboys were taught the arts of memory, all I can do is bow down in respect. But Milton, even by the standards of his own day, had a phenomenally powerful memory. He held it all in his head, but somebody had to write it down. Somebody had to take it to the printers, organise it. We know a few of the people who helped Milton at this time, this difficult time, to make his voice heard again. We know about Thomas Elwood, a young Quaker, Society of Friends, in and out of prison, as his brethren always were. He was crucial, in part because he had strong connections with the radical underground press that was operating in London at the time. We also know about Samuel Simmons, a printer, son of the Prince Matthew Simmons, who had published Milton's most radical works during the Civil War and the Cromwellian period. The son remained loyal to the, uh, his father's author. We know that pe people helped Milton in those ways. We know also that decisions, sensible decisions, were made about how to get this book out there, how to get it past the censor. This comeback book was going to be very, very plain. It would not draw attention to itself. There were no prefaces, no dedicatory poems, no explanation, no what we would call hype, no author appearances. Just the title, Paradise Lost, and the name John Milton. People must have been rather interested to see what John Milton, regicide, defender of divorce, political extremist, might have to say about Paradise Lost. And so the work was published in 1667, after six, seven, eight years of silence. It was the first major poetic work that Milton had written for well over 20 years. In the interim, he'd focused on prose, political, polemic prose. This was a return to poetry. And all I want to do at the end of this talk is to close with Milton's own words. The beginning and end of this remarkable work, which between them, I feel, capture two important aspects of John Milton's achievement. On the one hand, he is a public, political writer, asking the big questions, demanding a response from us. He's more politically engaged in practical day-by-day -day terms, let alone conceptually, than any other great writer in English. He is our nation's epic poet, and he's still making us argue now. You will hear all this, I hope, in the remarkable extended opening sentences, which make great claims for the poet and the poem in which, which we are about to read, and in which Milton's vision encompasses all of time, all of human experience. So I'll just read from the very beginning of Paradise Lost. Just hang on in there for the verbs. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. Sing, heavenly muse, that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos. Or if Zion Hill delight thee more and Siloah's brook that flowed fast by the oracle of God, I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song that with no middle flight intends to soar above the Ionian mount while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. All of experience, all of humanity, it's a very 
bold, all-encompassing gesture. Too much for many people who find Milton overwhelming, bombastic, pompous. But if you go to the end of Paradise Lost, you hear a different Milton, a profoundly human voice. Milton emerges as the poet of the individual. By balancing the individual and the nation, the human and the divine, he allows us to approach both. I'll read the ending. Talking about Milton is a, a gift in many ways. He is very, very good at endings. And so I've carefully contrived my talk today to end with Milton's own words. He will give me my closing words. But just to locate where we are, this is Adam and Eve leaving paradise forever. It's a vision of loss, of course, but it is also a vision of hope. Whereat our lingering parents, I'm sorry, I've managed to get that wrong. <laughs> Having said, he gives me my endings. I've misread my line. Whereat in either hand the hastening angel caught our lingering parents and to the eastern gate led them direct and down the cliff as fast the subjected plain then disappeared. They, looking back, all the eastern side beheld of paradise, so late their happy seat, waved over by that flaming brand, the gate with dreadful faces thronged and fiery arms. Some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them, where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide. They, hand in hand, with wandering steps and slow, through Eden took their solitary way. Thank you.